I was in a, a, a cozy place with, with good people and with people that are concerned first and foremost about the young students and student athletes that they have as a part of that program. And, and I know that the basketball component of it is, is what everybody knows, but the, the lineage and the history of, of that program being a family does branch beyond just the players. Even a, a scrubby little Gatorade pusher like myself, you know, as a freshman, felt that warmth, and, uh, and that made all the difference. It's basketball season in Chapel Hill. That was Jack Morton, a local freelance photographer. He'll be at games throughout the season. Jackson is 13th year of taking photos at Carolina basketball games. But Carolina basketball has been a part of his life for many more. Welcome to Well Said, Carolina's official storytelling podcast. Jack graduated from Carolina in 2000 with a degree in journalism. On this week's episode, Jack will share the second part of his journey into photography. It's a story of two families. Last week, he talked about his family of photographers. Be sure to listen to that episode before Jack continues with his story. This week, Jack will tell you the story of his other family. It's one you might be familiar with, the Carolina basketball family led by legendary coach Dean Smith. This family helped Jack deal with a personal tragedy. After high school, Jack followed the other members of his family to Chapel Hill. Transitioning into your first year at Carolina is often met with anticipation and excitement, but that wasn't the case for Jack. That summer of 96, I graduated from high school. I had knee surgery, uh, and I was trying to get ready for college. It was a challenging summer to begin with, you know, prior to July the 30th. On that day, Jack's dad took his own life. It's amazing how when a, a day like that happens or something like that happens, how, how you remember every single detail. And I think so much of that also comes from your, your senses. I remember how humid it was that day. I remember, you know, the fact that we had a thunderstorm that night and the power went out at our house after I'd, you know, found out about what had happened. I know where I was when my mom called me and very calmly said, you know, I think you better come home. And then she met me at the back door and, and told me about what had happened. And then I, I remember what I, you know, going on a walk to a, a park nearby with a friend. And then it just keeps going from there. And, and you know, uh, over the course of the next few days, it's just one of those, you know, you're in the shock stage. I mean, it's like, it's like with any uh, profound news that you have in your life and that doesn't have to be lost. It can be anything. You, you have that period of time where you're just sort of floating through it. You, you don't really, I don't think, have a, a tangible grasp on what's happening. Jack remembers being told that his dad was struggling with issues surrounding mental health. Christmas of 1994 was the first time that I had any inkling that my dad was struggling with anything, uh, you know, from a, a mental health standpoint. And even in 1994, general education or understanding of mental health struggles was so different than it is even now. You know, there was no internet. 
the access to information and, and understanding really was so limited. And I, I think it still, even then also, was very hush-hush in a way. I mean, I, I think people were uh, hesitant to talk about it. I don't know if there was embarrassment involved or, or what. But they, they told me at Christmas of 94 that he had, I mean, I, I can't remember the exact words that were used, but that, that he struggled with depression. But it, it was something that he was working on. Earlier in 94, he had gone to a, a clinic of some sort, I think, in uh, the Atlanta area for several weeks. So, you know, there was an explanation, kind of, that's where Dad was, that sort of thing. You know, when, you, when, when someone takes their own life, you, you're blindsided anyway. I mean, I, I don't think there's any, even if you were to suspect that, okay, this might be a, a risk or this might be a possibility for an individual, you still, I don't think, have any way of preparing for it. And, and certainly not, you know, as an 18-year-old kid, there's just not any way of, of seeing that coming. In a period of just 37 days, Jack's dad committed suicide, and Hurricane Fran rolled through North Carolina. In between those two events, Jack started college. There, there's an element to it, again, of you only go to college, well, most of us hopefully, one time. And, and so you only start college once in your life. There's no recipe for how to do that, and there's no previous experience to compare it to which, you, you know, you can compare it. And, and so for me, my college experience, and particularly the beginning of college, it, it may not have fallen into the category of, of normal. I felt lost at times because this campus, when you're a freshman and, you know, you're you're wandering around and you're surrounded by thousands of people, you can feel very, very lost. But at the same time, I think coming out of high school with everything that had happened at times, you know, feeling anonymous um, was was healthy. I, I think I sort of needed to fade into the the fabric of the campus and, and not recognize faces everywhere I went. Jack credits friends on campus for helping him with the transition. He also thinks working with the basketball team as a JV manager helped him. That wound up being the kind of the family unit that I needed. I've shared a story a handful of times, not that uh, anybody listening would have ever really (laughs) read it, but, you know, because of my grandfather being, you know, relatively known in North Carolina and and the connections he had at at the university and the people that he, you know, was friends with, the, the timeline of his work as a photographer, he and Coach Smith were good friends. And my freshman year wound up being Coach Smith's final year as head coach, which was, you know, even just from a Carolina basketball standpoint, that was a a special thing to, to be around uh, to see. But the system was the same for years because Coach Smith ran the program for years. You would start off if you were invited to, you would go in and interview with Coach Guthridge. If you were invited to work as a manager with the program, everybody had to start at the bottom level, which was as a JV manager. And then at the end of the year, they would narrow down the list and whittle away, invite you to come to camp and work as a counselor for three weeks. And anyway, by the time it all ended, you know, a group of 40 people would be whittled down to about seven or eight, you know, something like that. 
the JV team would always practice in the Smith Center after the varsity team, which makes sense. So we would have to wait in the tunnel for the varsity team to clear the court, so to speak, and then we could go in and practice. But JV practices a lot of the time wouldn't even start until 9 o'clock at night. And, uh, and Coach Ford, uh, Phil Ford, was coaching the JV team at that time. And as a side note, that was another blessing for me because Coach Ford and my dad were actually pretty good buddies. And so with him, I, you know, there was a familiarity with my situation and, and with everything that, you know, had recently happened. Uh, but no, I, I remember distinctly one night in um, October of 96 when basketball practice had really just started. I'd been around Coach Smith a handful of times in my life, but, you know, we weren't on a hey, how you doing basis necessarily. And, and the varsity team came through the curtain exiting the the floor and we were getting ready to go out there for JV practice. And, and I stopped him and I said, you know, I introduced myself. I just wanted to thank him basically for the opportunity. And, and he sort of interrupted me before I could really get any further. And, uh, you know, he kind of went into talking about mental health and depression and, and he got emotional, started to anyway, and, uh, you know, said, if you, you ever need anything, you know, come see me. And I just, I don't know, I, I felt like that was the first time that anything really clicked. And, and at that point in time, I sort of felt like, I don't know where this is going to go over the course of my college years, but this is the best place for me right now, because it's not only giving me structure, forcing me to do my studies at a certain time and know that I have to be at the Smith Center each night at a certain time and I've got responsibilities and I have checklists and all these other things. But I was in a a cozy place with, with good people and with people that are concerned first and foremost about the young students and student athletes that they have as a part of that program. And And I know that the basketball component of it is is what everybody knows, but you know, the the lineage and the history of, of that program being a family does branch beyond just the players. Um, even a, a scrubby little Gatorade pusher like myself, you know, as a freshman, felt that warmth, and uh, and that made all the difference. And I, I think that really gave me a family component when I really needed it. Working with the basketball team also gave Jack the opportunity to see his grandfather often. Hugh Morton, a famous North Carolina photographer, took photos of Carolina basketball for more than 60 years. I mean, you talk about a, a routine. He would, he would come out of that visiting tunnel, set his stuff down over on his corner uh, where they pull the, you know, the cushy chairs out, and, uh, and then he would walk over, you know, he'd walk the baseline, come around to where I was, or I'd meet him over there. And he would tell me what the weather had been like up at the mountain, uh, which during basketball season, of course, it's always, you know, snow or ice or high winds and kind of let me know what people, you know, what my uncle was up to or how my grandmother was doing. And he always, and he did this with, with other people. And I, I, and I think it's a, I've always thought it was a really neat thing that he used to do. He, of course, he always wore a, a jacket uh, of some sort. But he always had four by six prints in his breast pocket. And they would either be photos from previous games or they'd be pictures of 
something up in the mountains of the lake that they lived on with ice on it or fall color or whatever whatever the case would would be and and he would either he would give them to me or he'd give a copy to one of his friends that he may see around the floor you know before the game and it was almost like he was handing out business cards but but it wasn't a networking thing it was just that was one of the aspects of him in a pre-digital pre-internet world that's how he shared himself i think and and that that's how he shared not only his his craft but also who he was and and where he was and it, it's neat because th- this day and age you know if i took a photo at a game or up in the mountains and wanted to text it to you you you'd get it within a few seconds and then you could forward it on to friends and then i could put it on instagram and then everyone has seen it but his concept was the same as that but it was I don't know. There's there's a nostalgic sort of feeling to it because he would physically hand you, you know, here's a photo of the swinging bridge with, you know, rime ice hanging off the edge of it. We had 130 mile an hour winds the other night, and I mean, you physically held a photo, and then you could take it home with you and put it on your refrigerator. That's what he would do. That's those are the kind of little chit chats we would have. He photographed Carolina basketball for, gosh, I mean, 60 to 70 years in the big picture. He certainly understood the game and was a fan of the game, but he was not really a basketball junkie, so to speak. When you would talk to him, you wouldn't really talk to him about so-and-so's field goal percentage or, you know, hate that we can't rebound against Virginia or, you know, whatever the case was. He didn't, he didn't really talk basketball so much. It just sort of happened that that was one of the things that was a big part of his life. But, you know, those were what the little visits were like. And, you know, my friends that worked as managers with the program, you know, he'd he'd come over and we'd chit-chat and they'd get a chance to say hello to him and he'd maybe give him a photo, you know, that kind of a thing. I could always drive back to Raleigh, you know, and in 30 minutes go see my mom and, and have a home-cooked meal and sleep in my, my home bed. The mountains at that time felt further away. I mean, it physically took longer to get up there anyway back then. So I think it was important for me to have an in-person connection with those folks at that time. And seeing him consistently, I think, let him know that I was doing okay. I definitely wear my uh, emotions on my sleeve a lot more than he ever did. That was just his generation. So maybe I didn't look at those visits as gauging whether or not he was doing all right. But I think that it let him know, okay, you know, Jack's in a a good place with good people. He seems to be doing all right. I mean, it just adds to the, the special place where I was able to spend so much time during those years. After his grandfather passed away in 2006, Jack was presented with the chance to continue his legacy of shooting Carolina basketball games for another 60 years. Now in his 13th season, Jack feels that sharing the story about how he continues to overcome his father's death helps him and others too. You live 0 to 18 and then one day happens and then your entire life changes from that point forward. Being able to help others who maybe have dealt with something similar or who perhaps are dealing with a a crisis of a different type, you know, they appreciate somebody sharing how they got through something or somebody sharing what the grief process is like or, you know, whatever the, the, the angle is that you're, you're sharing. 
it helps you heal when you feel like you're helping somebody else perhaps heal or process or whatever the case may, may be. It's not driven by your own benefit, but you know that in addition to helping somebody else perhaps by being open and honest about your experiences, you're, you're also helping yourself. And I think that that's okay. I mean, I, I think we deserve to try to find a little piece of, of healing for ourselves even if it's 22 years later. I feel like photography is an, it's an expressive avenue for emotion, you know, and, and not to get into a different subject, but I, you know, wedding photography is a, a large part of what I do. And, and, you know, those, those experiences, even in, in college basketball games, I mean, there are so many events in life where, that are so driven by emotion. And, I think that that's also been a, a helpful thing. I've, I've never really thought much about that, I guess. But when you can see emotion daily in your work, be around it, try to capture it, I think I've learned so much about the value of recognizing emotion and recognizing openness and being transparent in the last, I'd say, probably 10 years. And, and I look back, lastly, and I, I don't fault myself for how I responded to my, my dad's death, you survive and you do what you need to do to get by. And, and I think I, I did that well at the time. I, you know, I do recognize that for a period of time, you know, I pretty much buried a lot of stuff down inside of, of me and, and didn't address certain aspects of, of what happened and, and then what that meant going forward in my life. But again, there's, there's no textbook for how to handle a parent taking their life or anyone taking their life for that matter. But, you know, it, it's, it's a continual process. It, it never ends every day. I, I don't want to say that I'm, I'm focused on it because that's not the case, but I, I would say just about every day without even really realizing it, there are corners or aspects or little places of your life where if you stopped and you recognized it, you would know that that, that impact is still there. You know, it can have an effect with decision making. It can play a role in how you look at something. And that's not saying that you're hung up on the past or anything like that. I think you just recognize that something of that magnitude changes you and, and it, it, it then embeds itself in different ways in different parts of who you are. And you never really get past it, but I think it's that, that matter of, of adapting. You know, I mean, I guess it's sort of like a. I don't know. You, you see, hear stories about things like lizards or, you know, whatever. They, they, they lose a tail or something to that effect, and maybe they grow a new one or, or maybe, I mean, we have a dog in our neighborhood that has three legs, and it's the sweetest, most wonderful thing to watch that dog's owner take it on a walk because that dog is as happy as he could be walking, hopping, whatever you want to call it, along with three legs. I mean, it, it's like he doesn't even realize that it happened because he adapted to whatever happened and and he's continued with his life i think that's the the key thing but i i i I do recognize the value of sharing what that adaptation is like and not being ashamed of it not being embarrassed about it not being uh, hesitant to be transparent and if you get emotional talking about something if you get mad if it puts you in a funk you're you're addressing it and you're not ignoring it and you're not burying it. That is, I think, just a, such a healthy component of 
moving forward with your life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Well Said and for tuning in all semester. See you next week.